Hi, I would like to invite you to attend our second annual Eucharistic Congress here in the Diocese of Tyler. We are going to host the Congress this year on June 9th and 10th at Bishop Gorman High School in Tyler. Our theme for this year is One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism. We will have keynotes in English by Dr. John Bergsma from Franciscan University of Steubenville and in Spanish by Bishop Daniel Flores from the Diocese of Brownsville. To register or to find more information, you can go to stphilipinstitute.org. Thanks. In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to begin our conversation on Dei Verbum, the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation from the Second Vatican Council. We will cover the history of church teaching on divine revelation between the Council of Trent and Vatican II, and then really focus in on the first half of the document, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Please enjoy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo, and I'm the Director of Faith Formation here at the St. Philip Institute. And this episode, we're going to be starting our discussion on the last of the four constitutions from the Second Vatican Council. So over the past several months, we've been working our way through all the major constitutions. And in this episode, we're going to begin the last document in the series, and that is Dei Verbum. Um, The Latin title is Dei Verbum. The English title of this one is The Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation. So this episode, we're going to be focusing really on the first half of the document. Um, And then in the last episode of our Vatican II series, we will be finishing the rest of the document. So Dei Verbum, as I said, um, is uh, the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation. It was promulgated and approved at the last session of the Second Vatican Council in 1965. So the final vote for this document was on November 18th of 1965. And it's one of the shortest documents of the Council. It's certainly, by a large measure, the shortest of the constitutions. Um, But that doesn't mean that it's the least important. Um, Actually, Bishop Barron, um, in a a number of podcasts and maybe some articles, um, has—he's made the argument that Dei Verbum is actually the most important of the documents of the Council, um, that it helps to give you sort of the interpretive lens for everything else that the Council taught. Um, I'm not sure if I agree with that exactly, but it is certainly a very important document. When the Second Vatican Council started, there was, at the very first session, there was preparatory documents called schema or schemata, um, and there was a document that was supposed to be on divine revelation. And that document was so fiercely debated that they had to wind up scrapping the entire thing. Pope John XXIII had to get involved. um, And by the time we finally get to uh, Dei Verbum, the, the, the document that was approved, there was another papal intervention by Paul VI. So it's a very short text, but there were a lot of debates and discussions about different points of what this document ought to be doing, 
how it ought to be going about discussing divine revelation. Um, so there's a really interesting history of uh, the document. And actually, if you look at the very opening of De Verbum, um, there's a sentence in the, in the introduction that says, Following in the footsteps of the Council of Trent and the First Vatican Council, this present council wishes to set forth authentic doctrine on divine revelation and how it is handed on. And then it goes on to say that it wants to do this, that is, present doctrine on divine revelation, so that by hearing the message of salvation, the whole world may believe. By believing it may hope, and by hoping it may love. So there's a very grand desire from the Council Fathers that if we can present to the world, and this is the modern world in the 60s, right, what we believe about divine revelation, it will help people to hear the message of salvation. By hearing that message, they will hope, by hoping they will love. So there's a really big fundamental reason for doing this. It's people need the message of, of salvation that is contained in divine revelation. But there's an important beginning to that statement, continuing or following in the footsteps of the Council of Trent and the First Vatican Council. So what you have sort of is a situation that, that looks like this. Basically, the Council of Trent made some proclamations about Scripture. Uh, they're very important, but they're also very contextualized in the time period. Council of Trent is responding to the Protestant Reformation, so there is an emphasis on the Catholic canon of Scripture, for instance, all 73 books of the Scriptures. There's an emphasis on the Latin Vulgate translation. There's a, a heavy emphasis when, when talking about divine revelation to talk about sort of two sources of revelation, that the Scriptures are one source of revelation, tradition is another, and in the context of responding to the Protestant Reformation, the Council of Trent put a lot of emphasis on sacred tradition as sort of the most, maybe not the most important, but it was heavily emphasized how much we need tradition. And Scripture was talked about, but not to the same extent, right? So that's, I mean, that's the 1500s. This Protestant Reformation has just, just happened, and, and this is sort of the Church's response to it. So you go from that point all the way to the late 1800s before you have another official statement on behalf of the Church about scripture at all. And that's 1893, we have an encyclical from Pope Leo XIII. Uh, it's called Providentissimus Deus, and in that encyclical, Leo XIII is trying to respond to something called the historical critical method. So this is really actually a big key for understanding what's going on in the Second Vatican Council's document on divine revelation. Over a period of many years, and it was really swelling in the period leading up to Leo XIII's papacy, there's this new way of studying Scripture and really any document called the historical critical method. And this method wanted to use developing sciences like archaeology, history, philology, uh, you know, uh, looking at ancient languages, and use these kinds of tools to study the meaning and interpret and, and arrive at interpretations of something like the Bible. So the Bible was being subjected to a new form of study, a new approach, and the church really hadn't taken a position on, uh, is this okay? Um, you know, there were some difficulties with this, this new approach, and, they, and the, the main one was rationalism, that we want to look at the scriptures like any other book, and we want to assume that anything that appears to be divine or miraculous we can just kind of cast that aside. That's not important to understanding this book. So you can understand why this kind of development in um, the analysis, analysis and study of Scripture needed a response from the Church. And Leo XIII does this in 1893, 
basically opening the door a little bit to this sort of modern um, approach, namely saying that we can use the study of philology and archaeology and history. We can read other ancient documents to help us to understand and interpret the scriptures, but that's not going to be the only criterion that we used. Um, Leo wanted to emphasize that the Bible cannot be reduced to a mere rationalistic account of the world, and he took some important but modest steps toward trying to get the role of scripture to take a, a greater place in the life of the church, especially in the formation of priests. I don't have time to go into great lengths on this, this encyclical, um, but he has a really, really interesting program of how priests ought to be prepared to study the scriptures and learn them in the seminary. Um, so this is, you know, late 1800s. As we go into the 20th century, there's still some lack of clarity about exactly how much Catholics are allowed to use the modern historical critical methods, um, and, and basically what's, what's the Church's approach to studying Scripture. So these questions are sort of up in the air as we go into the period leading up to Vatican II. Now, there is an exception in 1943. Um, Pius XII wrote uh, another encyclical on the Scriptures, and he gave more leeway to use some of these more uh, scientific approaches to the text while still emphasizing the fact that we have to, you know, pay attention to the, to the whole of the scriptures, to the patristic tradition, to the early church, to the church's teaching, these sorts of things. But the reality is when we get to the 1960s, there's still very much a crisis in Catholic biblical studies about what do we do with the Bible, how are we supposed to, to approach it, how are we supposed to understand it. And so there was definitely a need for the Church to re-emphasize what we believe about divine revelation, because you have on the one hand scholars who are trying really hard to follow the Church's rules but feeling constrained that they don't know exactly how much freedom they have, and then on the other hand you had scholars who were just just using whatever form of, of uh, methodology they wanted to use, and they weren't paying any attention to the Church. So there's a lot at stake in this Constitution on the Scriptures and on divine revelation about what is divine revelation, how do we receive it, how do we interpret it, and this is what the document sets out to do. Now, one of the biggest contributions of this document, Dei Verbum, is that the view of revelation being sort of two sources— Sacred tradition is revelation, sacred scripture is revelation, they're both sort of on equal footing, um, really is clarified here in, in Dei Verbum. So what Dei Verbum tries to do is return to a patristic understanding of what revelation, divine revelation, really is. And it's actually grander than scripture and tradition. Really, revelation is God's making himself known. And God makes himself known in a variety of ways, but there's only one source of revelation, and that's God himself. And he is the one revealing himself. And how does he reveal himself? Not primarily or even in the first place through a written text. This is why Pope Benedict XVI would say we, as Christians, as Catholics, we are not a people of the book. We're a people of the word and the Word was made flesh. So God's revelation is His revealing Himself, showing who He is, helping us to understand who He is, and that takes place 
by actions, by history, by words, by teachings, and then some of those are written down, and that becomes the scriptures. But then there continues to be revelation uh, handed on that maybe wasn't written into the scriptures. So Dei Verbum gets us out of this sort of two sources of revelation and returns us to God is the one source of revelation, and that revelation takes place through a number of different forms. Some of them are written down, some of them are not, and here we get scripture and tradition. So the idea of uh, a council, an ecumenical council, speaking at length about Revelation was a major challenge, um, and it's a very, very important document. And as I said earlier, Bishop Robert Barron argues that this is the critical document that you need to understand the entire council. So what we're doing um, in, this, in this episode, again, we're going to really just focus on the first half of the document. So I do want to give kind of an outline of the whole document just so sort of we know what we're working with. There's a one paragraph introduction, then there's six different chapters in Dei Verbum. So first chapter, uh, the, the first chapter is on revelation itself. So what is divine revelation? The second chapter is on the process of handing on divine revelation. So first, here's what revelation is. Second, how is that transmitted to, uh, to us? And then the third chapter, which is really, really significant, is the is called Sacred Scripture's Divine Inspiration and Its Interpretation. That's a really critical chapter talking about the importance of the idea of divine inspiration, and we have to have the correct understanding of what that means to begin with, and then how divine inspiration impacts the interpretation of the text. So those three chapters we'll talk about in this episode, and then there's three more chapters that we'll, we'll sort of deal with um, in, in a subsequent episode. One on the Old Testament, one on the New Testament, and then the last chapter is Sacred Scripture in the Life of the Church. So let's, uh, again, uh, focus in here in this episode on the first three chapters. So the first chapter is about divine revelation. The Council uh, teaches us that, that God's revelation, which is, again, his revealing his nature and his goodness to us, is done but for what end? What purpose? Why does God reveal himself to us? It's not so that we could write it down in a book. Like, that's pretty important. God reveals himself to us through his deeds and through his words and his actions with one goal in mind, and that is that we can share as human beings in the divine nature. So the process of revelation is ordered ultimately towards us having this union with God by receiving the divine nature. And that happens through a gradual process of revelation where God the Father slowly and progressively reveals himself, um, and then we can finally receive the, the ultimate gift of himself uh, that he gives to us through the sacraments, and in particular through the Eucharist. There is a discussion early in the document about the relationship between words and deeds and this kind of bigger picture of Revelation. Remember, Revelation is anything God does to reveal himself, and that includes words and deeds. Some of the words are written down. But listen to this little, par- this little sentence from the second paragraph of Dei Verbum. The deeds wrought by God in the history of salvation manifest and confirm the teaching and realities signified by the words, while the words proclaim the deeds and clarify the mystery contained in them. What this means is we don't have an adequate understanding of Revelation if we don't attend to the things God has done for his people and the things that he has said, the messages that he has taught us. You need both of those together 
to really understand what God is trying to reveal. So it's really under, important if you're you know, trying to understand the Old Testament to remember the deeds that God performs on behalf of the Israelites, and not merely, for instance, the commandments, which are the speech of God, right? The speech of God is important, but if you don't have that connection with the fact that he saves his people through the crossing of the Red Sea, then you can't really intelligibly understand what the commandments are for or how God could be in a position to give these commandments. Of course, God can give commandments whenever he wants, but he's formed a covenant and a relationship with the people of Israel, and that's where the commandments can sort of make more sense and be understood. So in chapter one of the document, you see a brief summary of salvation history, going all the way back to creation. It mentions the fall, God's promise of redemption, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses. All of this is revelation gradually unfolding until it reaches Christ, the Word made flesh, who is sent as a man to men. Christ manifests himself to us through words and deeds, and it is especially, the council says, through his death and resurrection that we begin to really understand and see who God is and what his nature is. This is paragraph four. The Christian dispensation, therefore, as the new and definitive covenant will never pass away and... We now await no further new public revelation before the glorious manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the council saying that revelation is complete. Our understanding of it may need to be worked out some more, but there is no new public revelation. The scriptures are complete. Um, There is an affirmation that we can know God without revelation, but there's also a recognition that we need revelation in a very real way to be able to fully comprehend who God is. In other words, the council is trying to kind of balance, right? The modern world wants to say, oh, you know, you don't need revelation. And the church says, well, there are some things you don't need revelation for. To know that God exists, you don't need that to be revealed to you. You can use your natural reason to attain that information. But to know that God is a Father who loves you and that He's a Trinity and that He wants to give, you know, give you a new life through baptism, you that reason alone is not going to get you there. So you need both of these things. There is um, a statement to this regard that the truths which by their nature are accessible to human reason can be learned more easily with revelation, which will allow us to know with solitude and no trace of error, even in the present state of the human race. So this is really kind of a summary of the first chapter of what's going on, what is revelation, and, and a little bit about how do we come to know it. The second chapter deals more with as I said, transmission of divine revelation. How the divine revelation that is given once and for all is known and handed on. And there really is a lot of emphasis on the tradition being handed on, revelation being handed on. So divine revelation, which again is words and deeds, right, begins to take shape in the form of writings, but those writings sort of have their beginnings as oral traditions, And in some ways, the council even describes Revelation as being broader than just Scripture and just tradition, but it also includes things like liturgy and prayer and um, the witness of the saints. Like, this is sort of part of God's revelation. So the Church teaches here that divine revelation is handed down to us in the Scriptures and also through the apostolic witness and the apostolic teaching. So the role of the apostles in handing on divine revelation is very, very important, and the unity between Scripture and tradition is also heavily emphasized here. So the Church is is saying, for instance, if we didn't have the apostles and the apostolic witness, we would not have a clear canon. 
Uh, we wouldn't know what the scriptures even were. Without the preaching and the teaching of the apostles, we would also have a difficulty in interpreting the scriptures because those witnesses to Christ's life and their students, you know, give us a very good window into what is the understanding of the early Christian community with regard to, you know, very central doctrines of the faith. So the church is emphasizing that we need the scriptures, but we also need the apostolic witness, the apostolic tradition. But at the same time, the council is careful to emphasize that the tradition is not above the scriptures. The church actually wants to say that scripture and tradition are in harmony and they serve one goal. And the church's teaching office guards the deposit of the written scriptures as well as the apostolic tradition. And all of this is guided by the Holy Spirit. So you have God revealing himself, giving himself, giving us um, you know, evidence of who he is by the things he does, by the, by the things that he says, also giving us through the Holy Spirit the written tradition of the scriptures, the unspoken tradition handed on to the apostles, and guarding this whole process is the Holy Spirit. So there's a very sort of Trinitarian dimension to this. Um, and the council says very clearly, both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same sense of loyalty and reverence. And sort of in the context of kind of 20th century debates about scripture and tradition, this would this would be seen as the church putting more emphasis on scripture, because everybody in the early 20th century knew the church is very big on tradition. Sometimes there was a little bit, maybe too much emphasis on tradition and not enough on scripture, and you see that really balanced out here in Dei Verbum, that the sacred scripture is really going to play a central role in the life of the church and needs to. Um, so th here's another statement. This is from paragraph 10 of Dei Verbum. Sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the teaching authority of the church in, accords with, in accord with God's most wise design are so linked and joined together that one cannot stand without the others. And that all together, and each in its own way under the action of the one Holy Spirit, contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. Sacred scripture and tradition, and the teaching authority of the church. We need all of these together to have a really good balanced understanding of what divine revelation is and what it means. Now, I want to look at this third chapter, chapter 3 of Dei Verbum, which talks about the concept of inspiration and also the interpretation of Scripture. So first, the principle of divine inspiration. The church teaches us that the Scriptures— are divinely inspired, and that they have God as their author. There have been always debates about how much of Scripture is divinely inspired, and I don't see any other way than to, to interpret the document than and other other pieces of, of the church's you know teachings than to say the entirety of Scriptures is divinely inspired, all of it. There's no exceptions. The Bible is inspired by God, and it has God as its author. But what does that mean? Well, there's also a human author. So one of the really interesting conversations in Dei Verbum, in chapter 3, is the cooperation between God as sort of the primary author and the, and the human being as sort of the secondary author. And, and really, the council doesn't actually use that language of primary and secondary. That's just my way of trying to explain it. But God is the author of the scriptures, but there's also human beings involved. In, and it's really fascinating because this is what we mean by divine inspiration as Catholics. The human beings who are 
involved in the authorship of the scriptures are not merely scribes. All right. They weren't machines who were taken over, right? They weren't dictating word by word what what the what the Lord is telling them, but rather as free human beings, as true authors, they are using their own language, their own analogies, their own sentence structure, their own syntax and grammar in order to express what God ultimately wants them to put down. They maintain their freedom even as they are serving God's purpose. And it's obviously, this is a a mysterious reality, but I do think it's important that the council is saying very clearly, they are true authors, but they are also legitimately divinely inspired, right? And all of the texts of Scripture is written in this way, such that the human author is trying to express something that is what God wants them to express. And that colors very much the way we interpret the scriptures. So what does that mean? Well, in the historical critical method, which I mentioned at the beginning of of our discussion today, there was this notion that the only thing you need to do to interpret the Bible is read it like any other document. And the church wants to say, ah, that's not quite right. The church knows that the scriptures are not like any other document. Are there similarities with any document? Yes, but it doesn't go all the way because the scriptures are divinely inspired. However, at Dei Verbum, there is this discussion about the fact that if we're going to interpret the scriptures, we do need to pay attention to things like literary forms or genre. We need to make uh, use of ancient languages and try and get the earliest uh, possible manuscripts that we can, and not merely, for instance, use uh, you know, like the Vulgate translation to do all of our interpreting. But we, we need to go back to the Hebrew, the Greek, if there's Aramaic, the Aramaic, whatever's the oldest translations, the oldest manuscripts that we can get, and make our new translations from there. Um, so in other words, we need to pay attention to all the human de- elements that we can and determine what is the human author trying to say. Um, in one of the commentaries I've been using, this Vatican II collection from Word on Fire for this whole series, I am not compensated for it. I recommend it strongly. That's really great. In one of Bishop Barron's comments on Dei Verbum, he talks about the importance of literary form and genre and says that needs to color the way we interpret things. So, for instance, you don't interpret a poem the same way you interpret a biography, right? In the same way, we've got to be attending to the forms that are being used in the scriptures. Some of the scriptures really is, in a very straightforward way, biography or it's dominantly a history that may include some poetry scattered throughout. Those sorts of things we have to pay attention to to really interpret it. And I, he uses this phrase, I love it, he says, because of all of this complex constellation of different literary forms and genres scattered throughout the entire Bible, the question, do you take the Bible literally, is about as intelligible as the question, do you take the library literally? Right, it, you take things according to their literary form, and so in that way, yeah, you take them literally, but according to the form that they're in. So, this is one of the things that's discussed in, in a very, very careful way in paragraph twelve of uh, Dei Verbum. How do we interpret the Bible? We pay attention to the literary form, language, the intention of the human author, but we also need to be paying attention to the whole canon of Scripture. This is one of the interpretive principles for the study of Scripture that personally has really like changed my life. And so I'm very passionate about this idea that if you want to understand one part of the Bible, you need to really have a knowledge of the whole. 
If you if you only are looking at one piece of it, one narrow piece, say a verse from Genesis or a verse from Revelation, but you don't know anything else that's going on in the Bible, you're not going to get that story correctly. One real easy way to think about this is if if you've never seen any mo- whatever movie, just pick a movie. You've never seen it before, right? And you watch just 3 minutes of it. Do you know how to interpret that scene? Definitely not, because you don't know what comes before it. You don't know what comes after it. Uh, there's one movie, uh, Memento, who uh, where the, the movie happens backwards. So even if you, even if you saw what was five minutes before it, really that's five minutes after it, and you would you you would have no idea what's going on, right? Something very similar applies to the scripture. Although there's this other layer completely. You've got human authors involved, but you also have the divine author, who's remember outside of time. And God has wisely arranged that some of the events, the historical events of the Old Testament, actually are intelligible on their own, but gain even more intelligibility when we see the New Testament and the way that it completes and adds to our understanding of the Old Testament. So the church says if we're going to interpret the scriptures, we need to look at the human element literary form, language, intention of the human author. We need to ascertain what the human author is trying to tell us, because that is what the, the divine author wishes to affirm. Secondly, we need to look at the whole canon of Scripture, and then we need to look at the living tradition. So what do the church fathers say? What have councils said about particular um, passages? Uh, and what is the, you know, what have saints and, and doctors of the church how has the church treated a particular passage? For instance, how is it used in the liturgy? That can give us a little bit of a clue. Um, so this is, again, we've got divine inspiration and then interpretation, all still in chapter 3. The last part of chapter 3 um, makes uh, uh, this really great analogy to the incarnation, and it uses this language that in the Bible we have the words of God expressed in human language. And it makes this connection between Jesus, who is God, becoming man, and that in a similar way, the words of God in the scriptures are expressed in human language, that there's, there's a similarity between God's condescension to become a human being and his words and deeds being manifested in human language through the scriptures, and that it's still part of his divine revelation. Um, this, this is a really sort of important principle that the Bible— and this kind of helps clarify that human author question, right? What is the Bible? It's the Word of God, but it's in the words of men. So just to kind of back up the first three chapters of Dave Arab, when we look at what Revelation is, and we see that it's not just the Scriptures, and it's not even just Scripture and tradition, it's everything by which God reveals himself, which includes Scripture and tradition, but it also includes God's deeds, his speech, the uh, tradition handed on to the apostles, and even liturgy, spirituality, these things kind of loosely could be called, you know, a form of divine revelation. Second, chapter 2, we looked at the discussion of divine revelation, how it is handed on, um, and the role of the church in giving us the scriptures, but also helping us interpret them. You have the church, well, you have the scriptures, the tradition, and the teaching office of the church, all three which are necessary to kind of balance each other out. And then finally, in the third chapter here, we look at divine inspiration. What does that mean, and how does it affect our interpretation of the scriptures? So, 
This is the end of the first section of the document. Um, and like I said, this was a major, major uh, importance to the council. Lots of debates, intervention of the Pope twice. Two different popes intervened in the, the production of this document. Um, and finally, it, it was approved in the last session of the council. So stick around for uh, our next episode where I will talk about chapters four, five, and six. And we'll wrap up this series we've been doing on the documents of the Second Vatican Council that we started way, way, way back in October. Thanks for joining.